Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Brooks Long to discuss David Ritz's biography of CBS Records boss Walter Yetnikoff. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and tonight we're welcoming back Brooks Long to continue the David Ritz Book Club with a look at Walter Yetnikoff's Howling at the Moon, The Odyssey of a Monstrous Music Mogul in an Age of Excess. Brooks, does it live up to the title? Uh, I'd have to say so. Uh, from from what I'm seeing here, uh, he even uh, took out, left out some things that would uh, really contribute to the title as well. <laughs> Indeed. There, and there's a couple things that are mentioned in the book, but way underplayed. Sure. Like the casual reference to how he got the royalty rate for CDs reduced by 50% because of, quote, <laughs> manufacturing costs, which I guess because CDs are so much cheaper to manufacture than vinyl, the, you know, I mean, so, yeah. There's, there's a lot that he threw in the last, like, 10 pages of that book that, uh, that yeah, one one could uh, come away with a lot of questions just from those last 10 pages. And for those of you who are going, who the heck is Walter Yetnikoff? The man was the president of CBS Music from the early 1970s until the early 1990s. He presided over a transition from the age of the record man to the corporate age we've been living in since the mid-90s. He's a very interesting transitional figure and not entirely awful. No. Uh, Well, uh, you know, comparatively, he seems like the sort of person that uh, big stars could trust. You know, Uh, at the beginning of the book, uh, he talks about getting a call from Billy Joel who thanked him for letting him know that, what was it, his brother-in-law or something was screwing him over? His um, managers, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I believe he uh, actually bought Billy Joel's publishing back and gave it to Billy Joel, although that I didn't either. I found that somewhere else, but I couldn't find it in the book at, when I went back looking for that. So, yeah, sometimes he did nice things. And um, and he seems like he was definitely a charming individual. But the other book that he's frequently mentioned in is Frederick Gannon's Hitman, which is was a spectacular publishing event in the early 90s because that really revealed the modern payola system. And Yetnikoff is kind of 
the bad guy in that or a bad, not even the really the worst bad guy, but he's kind of complicit along with um, the people that are the principal villains in that tale of basically indie promoters who locked independent records out of American radio in the late seventies to today. I mean, you still can't hear anything surprising on the radio and it's because of the system. We won't get into that too much. Um, but interestingly, there was a guy named Dick Asher who was his sort of, they were like co-presidents there for a little bit after the uh, recession of 79. And for a few years, Yetnikoff and Asher were working together and Asher was a real by the book kind of guy who tried to get rid of this indie um, promotion system, which is not technically payola, but it's payola. <laughs> It's payola. Like <laughs> you, you pay a guy who uh, an exorbitant amount of money to get your your uh, song on the radio. You don't ask how he does it. <laughs> yep. It just it just appears on the radio uh, once you pay this amount of money, and uh, my sources say that that is very much still in practice, even even though you know there's only a couple of of conglomerates that are controlling most of the radio right now. Yeah, and and there's only three record labels essentially, and and um, and this was already cutting. I mean, enormous amounts of money were being spent on this. At one, Asher made allegations that it was up to a third of the profit margin of the record labels, which seems high, but it's big, big money. And it seems like the real function of it wasn't so much to get their records on the radio as to keep anybody who couldn't afford to play that game off of the radio. And it's been very effective. Right. That. But let, let's dive into the book, though. This This book was published after his run at CBS had ended. And unlike, say, Clive Davis, who was his mentor, who was fired from CBS for um, having paying for his kid's bar mitzvah out of <laughs> record company funds, allegedly, I, I still kind of think that was trumped up. But Clive Davis has obviously gone on to, you know, founded Arista and and, you know, had another 30 years uh, still going in, in the music industry. And, and Davis, despite being a lawyer by training, he really did become a true record man in a way that Yetnikoff never did. But anyway, this book was published after Yetnikoff had fallen. And even though he started his own record label and tried to do a couple other things, none of that stuff ever really clicked. So his contribution was his years at CBS. So um, let's start Dick. with... Yeah, decades. Yes, indeed. Two two decades, and he totally dominated. And so we're talking about Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen, Cindy Lauper, Billy Joel, um, Streisand, Barbara Streisand, big figure, James Taylor, Paul Simon, one of his big enemies, uh, <laughs> and Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger, who both of whom he signed to big expensive deals pretty late in their careers. I doubt CBS ever recouped. Um, on those those two deals, so yeah, oh, it's... <laughs> <laughs> actually, you're right. I guarantee you, they didn't. <laughs> they, they probably did, but but those are probably more signings that you know you can you you're enticing all these other bigger players that could actually make you money. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're 
like you want to be on the same label as Paul McCartney or you want to go with, you know, this little other dinky label called Sub Pop or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's definitely some methods to the madness there. But I, I think as a rule, he was better at managing people who are already superstars than he was at yes. cultivating talent. His biggest his biggest signings was definitely the Jacksons, which left Motown for Epic Records pretty early on in his tenure. But it's not like he signed Michael Jackson, qua Michael Jackson, Jackson Michael developed as a solo artist under. But again, you can't knock him. I mean, that's as big as it gets, the, the Michael Jackson in the late 70s. The absolute, it's probably the biggest it will ever get. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, he, he seems to have been an honest enough broker that the the people who are already highly successful had you know if you're highly successful in the music business that means you've been burned a hundred times um and then you run into somebody that isn't going to burn you and that's that's yetnikov <laughs> he's not gonna he's not gonna completely screw you over yeah yeah he seems to have been beloved and and this whole thing with the monstrous music mogul Basically, he deliberately created this outsized persona. Um, he was a, a lawyer and a protege of Clive Davis. You know, Brooklyn College, Columbia Law School, very much a nose to the grindstone. Uh, you know, Jewish guy from from his dad was a house painter. Um, very similar, you know, Jerry Wexler and his dad, the window washer. I mean, but he wasn't a music biz guy. He wasn't a record man. He was he was a, a law firm guy, and. In order to make it as a record guy, he created this just outlandish persona, temper tantrums, cocaine, drinking, lots of sex, and you know, sort of tried to live the rock and roll lifestyle in a way and clearly pulled it off. I mean, he did it he did it for 20 years. Pretty interesting strategy. But let's go ahead and hear our first song. And this is the Jacksons, Shake Your Body Down to the Ground. And that was the Jacksons with Shake Your Body Down to the Ground from the late 70s. And that was on their second album with Epic uh, Destiny, which I think starts the whole grandiose album title thing that Michael and the Jacksons got into. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's probably uh, it, it is the start of adult Michael Jackson becoming the the phenomenon that he is today. That's like a that's a really, really strong album actually. Yeah, it really is. And the interesting thing is that their first album on Epic was produced by Gamble and Huff, the legendary uh co-inventors of disco, I guess, uh, of Philly International. Absolutely the safe choice. Um, you know, that was the logical move to do with the Jacksons when you brought them over because CBS had other than Philly International, they they were very weak in R and B, and 
you know, that album didn't click. So Yetnikoff actually let a very young Michael Jackson and, and his brothers as well, but we all know Michael was the in the driver's seat. Michael produced and, and wrote uh, multiple songs, produced the whole album and, and with his brothers, and then um, wrote several songs on the album. So, yeah, that's a key decision that I think Yetnikoff can take credit for and deserves credit for. But let's let's get into the story a little bit more. Um, yeah. The book the book starts with this sort of ridiculous story of him meeting with Jackie Onassis, who is, of course, the widow of of, of President John F. Kennedy and uh, Aristotle Onassis, the the shipping magnate and billionaire. By this point, Jackie O was single and was working in the publishing business. I have no reason to doubt this story that she she wanted to sign Yetnikoff to a publishing deal. The book was published. I, I assume that speaks for itself. But there's, you know, just a number of lurid fantasies about him having sex with Jackie. Yeah, that, that, that are pretty silly. And then he tells a story about, um, you know, interacting with Michael Jackson, which is something that, that he talks about quite a bit in the book. And he talks about how Michael Jackson used him to turn down David Geffen, who wanted a Michael Jackson song on the Days of Thunder soundtrack. Days of Thunder was one of those Simpson-Bruckheimer movies uh, that came after Top Gun. And Michael didn't want to have a song on the soundtrack, but Michael wasn't the kind of guy who could say no, especially to somebody like David Geffen, who was incredibly persistent and persuasive. So Yetnikov had to come in and do that. And that comes back uh, to bite him in the ass at the end of the book. So there's some strategy there, but it also talks about dealing with Mick Jagger, who wants to know the promo budget for the Steel Wheels tour and wants him to spend more time with Keith Richards. Talks about Tommy Mottola, who was his protege, uh, who later replaced him at CBS. And according to Yetnikoff, after you know planting a big knife in his back, also has a phone call with Billy Joel, who's calling to thank him, like you said, for warning about his management and encourage him to audit them. And then he talks about his other big partners, which uh, Japanese guys, Oga Morita, um, who were the executives at Sony, who famously bought CBS. And according to Yetnikoff's telling, He's the guy who brokered that whole deal because he had been in on the CBS-Sony partnership. He had helped negotiate it all the way back in the 60s, long before he was uh, the the king of the thing. So what was your take on him just from that first early chapter? Uh, I guess my my take on him was <laughs> this, this guy uh, uh, loved to be in thrive maybe in being in these high pressure situations at like the height of of the of the music industry you know the the jackie o thing seemed to be a way of illustrating that uh i mean he he was completely delusional (laughs) uh and you know drug addled and and uh drunk and all and all this but somehow he was able to function and and maintain himself and be able to to you know pull through on all these different things, all these uh, various strings that that were pulling him in uh, in different directions. And you know he eventually you know uh, spoiler alert he you know goes through recovery. But before he does that, you kind of see that. Somehow this guy's still doing stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it, to, to believe his telling of it, he's doing Herculean yeah. amounts of cocaine 
um, and plenty of pot and plenty of booze uh, to go with it. But let, let's go back to his story. So he's born in 1933, Jewish family in Brooklyn, like I said, uh, son of a painter and window washer. And, um, you know, has a dramatic story about his pop standing up, having a standoff with his uncle Max over something that his mother had done. His pop was defending his mother, although they didn't have the best relationship. Um, the mother cuckled him multiple times. It's very similar to the Jerry Wexler story, in fact, uh, about their parental relationship. But pop, Pretty his sure. father was pretty abusive with Yetnikov, or, or at, at the very least, very firm with Yetnikov, and they weren't close. But his dad had a heart attack right in the middle of that violent confrontation with, with Uncle Max. So that's kind of the human interest element there. But he's just an incredibly bright student. He aces Brooklyn College, makes it to Columbia Law School, navigates the difficulty of being a Jewish kid at Columbia Law School at a time when that wasn't all that common. Um, then he's in the Army for a little while and then comes out and joins up with Rosamund, Colin K., Petchik, and Freund. If I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering multiple of those names, but that's where he meets Clive Davis. And Clive Davis is the Pied Piper who leads him into the music biz. So any anything to add to his background? Um. I mean, one thing that I can say is that I think it's pretty significant that his his background is so completely unmusical. <laughs> yes, compared yeah. with you know uh, who we were just talking about, Wexler. Yeah, Wexler. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, music is was just his his life, but this is sort of Yetnikov. And Clive Davis sort of represent the beginning of of the lawyers coming in. Um, as far as Clive is concerned, uh, in, in creative ways, uh, but uh, but this is the beginning of of real big business. Yeah, this is where the the business comes over and, and takes him on. And so let's do a little history of CBS Records because they work together at the firm. Clive Davis gets recruited to go over to CBS, and eventually he pulls Yetnikoff in with him. And when they sign on in, in '62, when Yetnikoff signed on with CBS, um, Goddard Lieberson was the president of CBS. This is a legendary figure. I mean, literally a guy who hung out with the Kennedys, uh, not who once had a lunch meeting with Jackie Onassis and <laughs> turns into a sex fantasy in his autobiography. <laughs> Lieberson actually hung out at the White House and all their other mansions and and floated in that environment. And Bill Paley, who was the, the owner of the bigger CBS conglomeration that included the radio and the TV network and everything, you know, and, and built the Black Rock Empire. He was a Jewish guy, but he loves these waspy, waspy guys. And Lieberson was um, um, somehow kind of both, you know, like just but just very much fit in in that world of of a waspman. But at the same time, could navigate it. And CBS was built on things like the My Fair Lady soundtrack. Lieberson even f funded the play. Um, broke Leonard Bernstein, made him a you know massive cultural figure in the U.S. Hired Mitch Miller, who you know ran the A and R in the '50s, and is responsible for how much is that doggy in the window and Mule Train, and you know this very powerful figure, kind of the greatest A and R man of all time, but also kind of one of the worst. Frank Sinatra hated him, blamed him for you know his career problems, and 
did not click with Mitch Miller. Mitch Miller was very anti-rock and roll. So CBS was way behind the other major labels in rock and roll. Like RCA had Elvis, uh, Capitol Records got the Beatles by the 60s. But but in 62, CBS didn't really have um, a rock and roll wing. And, you know, Clive Davis climbs up the ladder. He's administrative VP by 1965 and president by 1967. And then let's take a quick break uh, and hear our next song. And this is Bruce Springsteen's Atlantic City from his Nebraska album. Blew up his house too. Down on the boardwalk, they're getting ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state. And the DA can't get no Skin of its teeth Well now everything dies Baby that's a fact that was Atlantic City from Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen. And this is another one where Yetnikoff gives himself credit and probably deserves it for letting Springsteen release Nebraska, which is basically him on acoustic guitar. No E Street band. You know, it's coming after the river. Um, he's big, but he's not as big as he's going to get. And most record companies probably would not have backed that play. But Yetnikoff had confidence in Springsteen, let him put out what everybody knew was going to be a non-commercial album and gets his reward with Born in the USA as the follow-up and then the live album. So, And I really am a big believer in the theory that an excellent record, even if it doesn't sell well initially, lays the groundwork for bigger sales down the road. Just like a weak record that sells a whole lot can kill your career, um, can kill an artist's career. Oh, yeah. it's overexposed. So, I would I would say that Nebraska was a key part of Born in the USA being such a hotly anticipated album. Yeah, it's it's called artist development. I mean, it's it's something that used to happen uh, a, a lot more uh, in that period and and before. But you know, there you can just look at the the album lists of various artists that didn't hit until maybe the fifth album and uh you know uh there's there's still money and promotion uh being pumped into them nowadays it's just it's just not like that at all yeah they won't even let an established artist release a single until it's a hit on tiktok so um (laughs) (laughs) you know but this is a period when they're still doing some of that artist development although we'll talk about some artists that he wasn't as as helpful with um, in a little bit, but back to sort of the history of CBS. And so Clive Davis takes over in 67, goes to Monterey, and I don't know if he literally dropped acid or not, but he has this revelation. I doubt he dropped acid. Um, Joe Smith dropped acid when he was signing the Grateful Dead to Warner Brothers, but non-consensually, <laughs> but I don't know about Clive doing that. But Clive has this revelation, signs Big Brother and the holding company, um, electric flag with michael bloomfield blood sweat and tears the chambers brothers uh even signed scott mckenzie before the thing who had the hit single san francisco that was written by um uh papa john phillips of the mamas and the papas who had masterminded the monterey pop thing but so cbs makes this hard turn into rock and roll perfectly timed janice joplin was the star of the festival clive signs or 
with Big Brother and the Holding Company. She was in a band at that time. Doesn't go solo till a little later. But you know, that's those are smart moves by Clive Davis. Although he also completely destroyed Moby Grape, who was the hottest band coming out of San Francisco as of Monterey, and that the, CBS literally released five singles on them at the same time. And Ahmed Erdogan in his autobiography claims that. Um, he tricked Clive Davis into doing them, doing that by talking about how they're the next Beatles and and you know the way the Beatles had five hit singles in the top ten at the same time. I think Moby Grape can do that also. And mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so but but anyway, I think it's Moby Grape. Moby Grape was was really good, but but uh, yeah. not in that environment. You're not. No, that the Beatles was a unique phenomenon, and even the Beatles, had they been signed in a different time and place, could not have done that. Um, but anyway, Davis establishes himself as a true record man and and has a great run at CBS up until 1973 when he sacked uh, for misappropriation of funds, which was probably overblown. And one of the factors that they talk about too is CBS, of course, owned 60 Minutes, uh, the investigative news magazine, and and had to worry about their licenses from the FDA, not FDA, the FCC, um, to put on TV shows and radio shows. This was much more serious. Like back in the day before the Fairness Doctrine and things were stripped away, before we were in our modern neoliberal era, the networks were actually pretty closely regulated. And so CBS had to be careful like that. So any kind of hint of impropriety and, and the other branches of CBS freaked out. So Davis gets pushed out, which accidentally killed Stax Records. Uh, and, and, and that doesn't come up here. But that leaves our boy Yetnikov with his big opportunity to come through and become the president. Um, and Another figure that comes up in the book a lot I haven't talked about is the infamous Morris Levy, who is the villain of Hitman, who's the villain of the Frankie Lyman story and has a character on The Sopranos that was based on him. Morris Levy is like the face of mafia um, infiltration of the music biz in the 20th century. And Yetnikov's – what did you make of Yetnikov's telling of his relationship with Morris Levy? Uh, <laughs> Yetnikov like seemed to uh, like him quite a bit. Uh, they they you know had a fairly chummy relationship, even though it seems like he screwed him out of a horse race or something. <laughs> yeah, he got Yetnikov um, to invest like three hundred grand in a horse that never paid out. Like, um, you know, barely got the three hundred grand back over many years. But um, yeah, but. Yeah, yeah there's well, various various altercations like that. The first time he meets him, though, he's sent there to collect 400 grand that Morris Levy owes CBS, and they, right. and that was a big test for Yetnikov because that's the kind of thing nobody wants to do. Morris Levy's a great big dude who's literally an associate of the Genovese family back when, I mean, it's still scary, but back then it was really really scary, and. Yetnikov claims that he came out of that meeting with the 400 with a you know and got a check for 400 grand uh, delivered to CBS within a couple days. So yeah, it's it's fascinating and I think I think because Hitman had come out and had linked him so tightly with Morris Levy, he had to address that. But he doesn't and he does address the indie promoter thing also, but never quite as direct. I mean, I think it's very artfully done and i think david ritz did a really good yes. job of helping him <laughs> structure this book so that it's a pr positive for him yeah for sure and 
the way that Yetnikov paints it and that David Ritz uh, paints it, uh, he he comes off as somebody who knew that improper <laughs> things were going on, uh, but those improper things were necessary for for the the business and for him to to do well in in his job. That's that's what what he says. I'm sure you know that, that that's that's what so many powerful people say that we have to keep these. Uh, things in place, or else we'll go under. Nobody. It's it's very rare that you know these these businesses you know just take it to the corrupt institutions. They, they <laughs> why we're making money this way? Yeah. The the one thing though, the way Yetnikov describes his particular tactic of dealing with Levy is that he approaches as just a very by the book thing. When he wanted the four hundred grand. He just said, hey, I'm here to get the 400 grand, basically. And, um, you know, when there were various confrontations, there's another time when he, uh, you know, filed suit against Levy over, I can't remember which conflict it was. But I I have seen that the work. The ELL. <laughs> yeah. ELO issue. Yes, where, where Le- yeah, Levy had gotten a hold of an enormous number of illegal ELO albums of cutouts that were not on the books and was selling them in England. Like, <laughs> like, you know, like uh, almost a million records that quote fell off the truck. And then, uh, it, Levy's taken over to England. That was, you know, one took over the line, sweet Jesus. So Yetnikoff sued him, but let's take a break from our sponsors. When we come back. We'll talk about more of Walter Yetnikoff's misadventures in the music biz. So, yeah, I was talking about this tactic that Yetnikov claims he used to deal with Morris Levy. And it's one I've seen work where if you're an official and you've got a job to do and you're strictly by the book and you insist on sticking to that, then you can deal with all kinds of unsavory people and powerful people in an honorable way. And that's that's to me, that kind of has the ring of truth to it. Um, And then there's a couple of other big accomplishments that Yetnikov trumpets. And I think this is, these are also to his credit that, you know, a big part of the break for thriller, which, you know, Jack, like we talked about the Jacksons, um, the beginning of adult Michael Jackson. And then, and then he, he wants to do a solo album. So in 1979 off the wall comes out and Yetnikov says he greenlighted that. And obviously he did especially because Quincy Jones was going to be the producer. And if you know, you know, Quincy Jones history of working with Frank Sinatra and then a pop producer in the sixties with Leslie Gore and others and a, you know, arranger soundtrack artist, just absolutely a list guy, any music biz insider would respect Quincy Jones at, at that time. And so that seemed like a lock to Yetnikoff and probably would have seemed like a lock to virtually any music executive at that point. But you know, very smart move off the wall sells millions, establishes Michael Jackson as an adult solo act. One of, and probably the only great disco album uh, CBS ever put out on their own label. Um, I'm, I'm talking out of my ass there. I have to double check that, but it, it's the only disco album I can think of. Another, yeah. Maybe uh, Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah band might have been on Columbia. I don't know. It feels like a Columbia sign. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be. That could be. But the key thing was when the follow-up is, is due to come out in 82, MTV is suddenly a factor, which it had not been in 79. And MTV was segregated. It was all white. 
And Yetnikov is the guy who forced them to break that. He threatened to pull all of CBS's videos from MTV, and he had already played hardball with MTV by forcing them to pay the record companies to get the videos rather than seeing it as promotion along with radio. And because it was unregulated, the FCC was not taking an interest in this. They were able to cut that deal. And I think I think forcing MTV to pay was very smart uh, on Yetnikov's part. Although in the end, I think that kind of killed the music video uh, as a viable thing around the 2000s. That was one of the factors that made it hard. For, MTV just made more money doing other things than playing music videos, in part because they had to pay for the music videos. But nonetheless, the important thing is that he bullied them into playing Michael Jackson videos. And lo and behold, all of the kids in America wanted to see Michael Jackson on MTV. It was it was it it was so good for MTV. MTV ought to thank should have been thanking him because um, you know, no Michael Jackson, no MTV as we know it. I mean, it just wouldn't have been the same at all. The cultural impact of that move can that be overstated? I mean, that is a really big deal. No, I don't think so, especially since um, there there were, you know, people in rural areas that were sort of being turned on to pop music more and more, especially like these these discos were, you know, cropping up in the Midwest and stuff like that. But but, you know, there's not, you know, the the OJs aren't coming through Iowa or 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 wherever too much. So. Uh, the the exposure to black musicians just isn't there on, until this happens, and that's if I'm if I'm correct, that's a lot of the base of MTV was was like these r- rural areas where they don't they never got great television reception in the first place, so they get cable, um, and here's MTV. Uh, um, as a part of the the cable package, and so you're seeing a lot of Kaja Gugu and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, but, and, what, and that's what made the record industry pay attention to MTV in the first place. Was like suddenly Kaja Gugu is selling albums in Laramie, Wyoming, and people are like, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> you know, and the Human League and Duran Duran and so many groups like that. And then once um, black artists get a chance, and of course, we should mention Rick James. Yes. Who was That's on Motown. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, and, and had spoken out vociferously against this racism, but he didn't have the kind of muscle, and Motown definitely didn't have the muscle as an independent label at that time to you know muscle MTV into playing it. And in fact, Rick James was basically permanently banned from MTV uh, for speaking out on that, never did get yeah. uh, exposure on MTV. But nonetheless, Yetnikov was- solved that problem. Yeah, it was it was pretty much it was Michael Jackson and and that sort of opened the door for Prince and every now and again there would be somebody else but until Yo MTV rap TV raps it, it, you know they they were kind of it but uh but it it was still huge like this is the era that I grew up in I grew up in probably the first era where the biggest selling artist of that time was, you know, a black artist and the biggest selling albums uh, artist of, of all time was this black artist, uh, Michael Jackson. It was, a, you know, that that's just something that my grandmother who grew up, uh, you know, in, in the twenties just couldn't say that, 
the you know the biggest selling jazz artist was was Louis Armstrong. It wasn't. No, that was Bing Crosby and Paul Whiteman and so many others, and that pattern repeated through the fifties and the sixties and the seventies. And another another factor is Rolling Stone magazine would would not feature R&B artists on the cover. And and I remember talking to Ed Ward about this. Jan Winter's story was, you know, R&B doesn't sell. As far as I can tell, they put Sun Ra on the cover very early on, and that didn't sell as well. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I love Sun Ra. Massive cultural impact, but not somebody you're going to peg. You know, avant-garde jazz is not going to be getting the, the issues to fly off the shelves. And I'm sure in the early 70s, it was also a very racist time. Racist backlash. Rock and funk are separating, um, mostly because of segregation on FM radio. But that, I do think there was an element of, of black nationalism uh, coming up and you know, a white backlash to the civil rights movement. So, so, you know, both communities, I think were kind of pulling back on their own, but definitely the big corporate segregation and racism was the biggest factor in that. And so Yetnikoff bullied Jan Winter into putting Michael Jackson on the cover of Rolling Stone. And I'm sure that made Jan Winter a lot of money and, you know, opened his eyes to a new era being out so that was that was a those are the positives on on yetnikov but there's a few things he didn't mention and we'll let's hear our next song and then we'll uh talk about those and this is cindy loppers all through the night Cindy Lauper's all through the night. And Cindy Lauper, I would have to say, is one of the artists that Yetnikoff signed and developed. So, you know, definitely a feather in his cap there. Although another key artist that he signed and made a ton of money for CBS, he doesn't mention at all, is Weird Al Yankovic. Why not love for Weird Al? You know, I couldn't tell you because I love Weird Al myself. <laughs> and he's he's definitely got a uh, a corner of the music business that nobody else has really probably tried to touch. Um, yeah, absolutely unique artist. The only novelty record career, the only multi-decade novelty record career in history, as far as probably, I know. yeah, I and mean, you know, hands down, it and worked so well uh, with them having Michael Jackson. Obviously, the the Beat It and Eat It parody was classic, but you know. I can see. I mean, why are you going to mention Weird Al Yankovic when you've got you know all these other Barbara Streisand and and Mick Jagger to tell? But another artist that he doesn't mention at all is The Clash, and I had forgotten about The Clash's difficulties with CBS until you reminded me. So, um, you know, first off, The Clash's first album um, comes out in 1977 in England, and it was CBS England that signed him to what was then considered just a scandalous, I mean, punk rock community was very scandalized by the clash signing with, with CBS. This is in the aftermath of the sex pistols, various, um, 
label signings and droppings and and the great rock and roll swindle as Malcolm McLaren called it. But CBS USA would not release The Clash's first album in the States. They flat out would not put it out. It wasn't not just that they wouldn't promote it. They would not release it until 1979. In the intervening year of 1978, that's the biggest import album in the country. So that was a boneheaded mistake. I think it sold like 100,000 copies as an import. Um, Might have been only 20,000. I've seen different figures. But either way, clearly there was a market, if not a massive market, but there was a market for the class in 1977. For, for sure. Um, I think labels like Columbia, uh, you know, they talk about like Motown being squeaky clean, but no, not like, not like, uh, Columbia, (laughs) Columbia, um, you know, they, they've, They've got artists who are, you know, fantastic. You know, James Taylor is great, and Paul Simon is is great. The Jacksons are great, but there's there's a certain uh, slickness that uh, I I could see reading about uh, the class signing with CBS and and just scratching your head like, how is this gonna go? Did we just lose them already? Um, that was the which, consensus at the time, which the which community. which they didn't. I think what I've heard, I can't remember if it was the London Calling album, which was a double album, or the Sandinista album, which was a triple album, triple LP. Uh, but I believe that the class just like held the the master tapes, uh, sort of. Sp- stole the master tapes and kept them away until CBS agreed to sell them for the price of one LP, which is just, you know, that's not something that Yetnikoff probably wants to talk about. Yeah. And, and I think my understanding of this, and, and I should have brushed up on this more before this episode, but um, that I, I remember London Colin did not have a double fold gate. Like, you know, Sergeant Peppers and all these albums in the 70s, basically even single albums would have a, a double gatefold sleeve. So it opened up like a book and you could roll your doobies and all that stuff in, in the fold. And there were so many double albums that came out in the 70s. They all had gatefold sleeves. And London Calling was both records stuffed into one sleeve, which I'd never seen before. And, and there was also something else in their contract where they – London Calling counted as two albums for the purposes of their contract. Like they had an eight record deal or a 14 record deal, whatever it was, they were knocking out two at once. And then they come back with Sandinista and wanted to do a triple album. And London Calling had been their commercial breakthrough. Uh, they had a hit single, Train in Vain. London Calling had had made the top 30 or something like that, but they were not platinum artists or well-established, but they were getting radio play. They were selling. It was obvious they were going places. Then they show up with Sandinista, which is this triple album filled with all kinds of experiments. It's like somebody said, you know, London Calling proved that The Clash could do anything, and Sandinista's, they try to do everything (laughs) (laughs) it's the the sound of them going in a thousand directions at once yeah and and, you know yeah it's kind of their white album sort of 
on beyond if if the white album had included you know what's the new mary jane and and every <laughs> outtake you know that that it, it could have and been a triple album that would have been sandinista sandinista to me boils down to be a really great single album and a pretty solid double album but the triple album is just full of filler anyway and so i can <laughs> see experience yeah yetnikov having troubles with that and and like you say the clash is really the only contemporary hard rock band that I can think of that made a major impact that was on uh, CBS at that at that point in time. Although he does uh, partner with Def Jam and again, doesn't mention it except to mention that uh, the public enemy Professor Griff kerfuffle when uh, Griff made some anti-Semitic remarks and had to be kicked out of the band and that, that kind of, or the group, that kind of you know, every every band has like a career arc or every act has a career arc. And that was kind of the peak of Public Enemy's career arc. Once they had that trouble with Professor Griff, they never quite recovered the momentum they had. And he mentions that in the context of, of that, but doesn't talk about the Def Jam deal at all, which was a really big deal. Yeah, and, how about that? Yeah. And uh, I assume that that was something probably Tommy Mottola or somebody else under him took care of. Um but nonetheless, yeah, it's interesting to me that he wasn't focused on that. And and frankly, his job was to be on the phone with the Paul Simon, the Paul Simon. And that's the other thing we mentioned. And he does talk about the Paul Simon feud. But essentially, as soon as he gets to the label or ascends to the presidency of the label, gets crossways with Paul Simon, just does not like the guy. And they have this brutal falling out and ends up Paul Simon goes to Warner Brothers at the same time that he poaches James Taylor away from Warner Brothers. And that kind of brings us to his F the Bunny uh, campaign. And <laughs> basically, Warner Brothers was the top label. And I did an episode with Peter Ames Carlin um, about his book, Sonic Boom, about Warner Brothers. And Mo Austin and was kind of the king record man of the, the, this era. And also you had Joe Smith there. And then they had Atlantic with Ahmet Erdogan and Jerry Wexler. So the, you know, the the Warner Electra Atlantic conglomerate and David Geffen was in uh, in there as well with his um, Asylum label. They were the top label. That was the label all the artists wanted to be on. They were selling the most records. And so Yetnikov very shrewdly picks them and, and you know, says, these are the guys I want to take out. And he does things like poach James Taylor away from him. And Taylor does go on to have another uh, a couple hits for him, but the biggest biggest hits were behind him. And he lets Paul Simon go seemingly at a really smart time because the next couple albums Paul Simon does uh, struggle. He ends up you know, trying to get back with Art Garfunkel. They have a very successful Central Park concert, but then they can't do the follow-up album. Of course, then he triumphs with Graceland. Yetnikoff doesn't mention that. <laughs> <laughs> Why would he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he does mention signing Elvis Costello, and he gives Lisa Robinson, the the pioneering uh, rock critic, female rock critic, credit for tipping him off to that. He pairs Barbara Streisand with Barry Gibb for their hit "Guilty," and Barry Gibb was with um, R uh, RSO, which was Robert Stigwood's label. Stigwood obviously had massive success with Grease and the Saturday Night Live soundtrack, and of course Saturday Night Fever, sorry, soundtrack. And Barry Gibb was you know, the key songwriter and producer in much of that. So it's pretty, pretty slick on Yetnikov's part to get Streisand with Barry Gibb. And I want to run a theory past you that um, Barry Gibb's partnership with Barbara Streisand is the beginning of modern pop as we know it today, that all the Whitney Houston's and um, 
you know, everything that comes after that comes from this album that that before this Barbara Streisand was in this Broadway pocket that never really figured out how to deal with rock. Like at one point she tried to do a she did a rock and roll album, but it wasn't a massive hit. And I don't think her identity was really stable until she did that partnership with Barry Gibb. But let's hear our last song. And this is The Clash. <laughs> Ivan meets G.I. Joe from the San Denise album. And that was The Clash with Ivan Meets G.I. Joe from Sandinista. So, Brooks, what do you think of my theory? Is that as epic as I'm making it out to be? I I think it could be that. We're, we're floating around that era where where it's it's starting to change, where you're getting, like, the pairing of a super producer with, with uh, an established start. We just talked about a pairing that that uh, was happening around the same time, which was Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones. So I, I, but between those two, and maybe Donna Summer wasn't, um, you know, huge before she was with Giorgio Moroder, but no, that nobody. that that pairing probably helped things along quite a bit too, like. Um, yeah, that's 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 a good point. And also Lionel Richie's partnerships and crossovers with with Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton in that same era. But Barry Gibb was mixed up in that, too. He was he was collaborating with those same artists. So I think there's something going on there. But it's right in this era when what what we would now call modern pop, um, yeah. you know, all all, all of the, all the names I can't think of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All I the acts my daughter makes me listen to, um, all, all sprang from that. The Keishas and and you know I'm Taylor Swift of, and. Yeah, I'm thinking of everybody from Janet Jackson to Lord to you know to, um, oh, who are these people? You know, I'm you, yeah, yeah. If, we're well, we know who these people are. <laughs> We're old and we're dudes. It's not our thing. But anyway, um, but yeah, I, I, I think I think you're right to include Michael Jackson in that and 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 Janet in that nexus as well. Um, but anyway, we got to get to the fall of Walter Yetnikoff now. And so in the 80s, there was a thing called the hostile takeover, and this is the beginning of the era when stock markets are just unfettered like they hadn't been since the great crash in 1929. And so people like Ted Turner and Marvin Davis and Ivan Boski are, are corporate raiders and they're pulling these stunts that, you know, financial shenanigans basically that would give them leverage over a corporation and tons of corporations were taken over in these leverage buyouts with where people were manipulating junk bonds. This is where the whole formula of I'm going to borrow a gazillion dollars. I'm going to buy a company. I'm going to saddle that company with all this debt. 
debt I just accumulated, I'm going to loot the company and then I'm going to stick them with the debt and, and, you know, send the shareholders holding the bag down the road. And so, uh, Bill Paley and everybody at CBS did not want CBS to fall into fate like that. And so they sell to Larry Tish who buys it in 86 and by 87, he's selling CBS music to Sony and Yetnikoff who had been, who had put together that deal in the 60s and stayed very close with the key executives at Sony, um, negotiated that deal. And this to me is a classic case of kind of the car, the dog catching the car. Because Yetnikov thought, since he was so tight with the key executives at Sony, and that he was just locked in. And 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 you know, he made sure those executives personally profited enormously from it. He profited enormously from it. But he literally thought he was then gonna go to Hollywood and negotiate deals for Sony to buy studios. He did do some negotiating. None of those deals ever come through. And the net effect of it is within a few years, he's forced out. And it's this vicious combination of uh Alan Grubman, who was a guy that was pals with Tommy Mottola and sort of a factotum to Yetnikoff and somebody that Yetnikoff abused all through the book. He tells about all that, you know, get down and bark like a dog, Alan, or do this or do that. But Yetnikoff and Mottola would get Grubman to become the lawyers of various clients. But then Grubman kind of turns on him. And when he becomes Michael Jackson's lawyer, that's kind of a death blow or one of several, it's a warning blow that Yetnikoff should have heeded. And then a specific Japanese executive, Oga, um, whose first name I didn't write down. Apologies for that. Um, but he's the guy that Yetnikov claims that he made sure profited handsomely in this period. And then they were never as close as they had been before. This is a guy I'd known for decades who'd stayed at his house. They you know, told each other all their secrets. And there's an old expression, you know, don't do people big favors because they'll never forgive you for it. And I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think this is one of those cases where the guy owed Walter and didn't want it and paid him back, you know, with a big knife in the back. And so he's forced out his protege, Tommy Matola was actually in the office next door, negotiating his deal to take over the company. Um, as as this was happening so you know for any sins yet committed he gets his payback at, at his downfall and is it what, what do you think like i don't know I've, i score it fairly even for yet he accomplished he did some you know getting michael jackson on mtv alone is is worth a great deal but negotiating this ripoff of the artist royalty so that they got half as many royalties on cds as they got on vinyl is a massive de- demerit, you know? Like, I don't know. Where where do you come down on Yetnikov's overall contribution? Oh, you know, um, I I think somebody like Yetnikov is not um, from the from the standpoint of like a Jerry Wexler. He's he's not Jerry Wexler. We can't really thank him too much for you know propelling artistry or anything like that but but he's an interesting figure and a key figure in a in this turning point right um and uh where where it really becomes uh a business the music business really it's very hard (laughs) to 
to uh, wrestle the wrestle music in into being a business. It's sort of incompatible, but yeah, uh, I mean, I would I would call our modern era kind of the blind idiot god era of, of the music <laughs> business, where they literally have no idea what they're doing and then constantly step in on their babies without even noticing, uh, you know, what they're doing uh, to the point where you know, music has lost its grip on popular culture, you know, compared with like what it was like when we were growing up, much less the 1960s. Music is far from the hippest or most influential um, art form today. And I think this is the moment where it really starts. I think if Clive Davis had not been fired from CBS in 73 and had stayed on uh, through the 70s and 80s, and he might have been able to hold on to the 90s, you never know. He's an arrogant guy supposedly a lot of people don't like but he was a true record man uh despite not having the resume for it and you know you can argue about his taste and whether or not he you know spoiled aretha franklin's later career or whether he you know some people consider whitney houston's career to have been a waste i i don't personally view whitney houston that way i mean just from seeing what she has meant to her work has meant to so many people um yeah no i i can't take that take no <laughs> yeah no but i can understand why some people are frustrated that she didn't do this or she didn't do that she's again one of those artists who could have done anything and you know so she's not going to be remembered in the same way as say sarah vaughn or somebody or even aretha franklin and she didn't ascend to those heights but she certainly achieved a lot but anyway I think if Davis had stayed at CBS with Yetnikoff as his right-hand man, this era we're in now wouldn't have started quite as quickly, that, that it was more analogous to what Mo Austin or Ahmed Erdogan or other record men were doing at other labels. But either way, by the early 90s, when Yetnikoff gets pushed out, that's when the record industry really starts self-sabotaging. We already talked about this with the guy who replaced uh, Mo Austin. I already talked about this with Peter Ames Carlin, that you know they immediately bring in somebody who's immediately doing things like pissing off Eric Clapton. And, and <laughs> at a point when Eric Clapton really was selling a ton of records and mattered. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I'm hoping to do future episodes on, on what happened to the business in the 90s and 2000s, but none of it's good. And, Yetnikoff is this key pivotal figure where it transitions from record men. Um, and I would be saying record women, but there just frankly weren't that many of them. It was a very sexist uh, industry and business. But the people that come after Yetnikoff are, with some exceptions, but for the most part, just not at all engaged with the product they're creating or the people who create the product that they're selling. They're not creating anything, but the product that they're selling, you know. Yeah. You know, um, I was, as I was reading the book, it made me think so much about something that Frank Zappa had said a bunch of different times about record executives. And I actually looked it up. And it made me think a little differently than I had been thinking about Yetnikoff. Uh, Frank Zappa was basically saying that, you know, in the olden days of the record industry, there was, you know, some bald cigar chomping man who didn't know what the hell was going on. But these kids were coming up to him and, and you know, they had a thing and it seemed to be going 
well in their community. And he's like, yeah, I don't know what this is, but put it out. And he says that that was better than the, you know, the hippies that got in there and uh, matured out of the revolution a little bit who said, we know what the kids want and it's not this, you know, give us something else. Um, and Yenikov was kind of more in in the latter um he's kind of the next wave after that crop because i could you could kind of put mo austin joe smith clive davis in that category but again zap was kind of wrong there because you also had people like erdogan and wexler who were down in there writing songs for the you know artists and, and stuff but yeah i know i know what you mean there but let yeah. me go ahead and let let you finish yeah 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 uh People like Erdogan and uh, Wexler and certainly Barry Gordy are those people are are very hands on. Um, But uh, but Yenikov uh, never claims to really have a strong connection to the music at all. Like never once to I, I think a big thing about uh the record industry like from a little bit after or during his time on is that you get all these people who really think that they know what's gonna sell what's gonna hit and i think the the one thing that we as as pop music historians can say is that no you don't <laughs> yeah you, you don't does. know what the the next big thing uh, is going to be you don't know um you know there are these there are so many stories of these artists that executive thinks think are terrible and then they just like become these incredibly influential sometimes successful uh acts but these days the record industry is filled with people who really have fooled themselves into thinking they know what they're doing (laughs) and i think frank zappa's point is that um uh the old guys always kind of knew it was a crapshoot well but but you know they were gambling on their gut well yetnikoff doesn't think he knows what the what the best music is but he doesn't really have a gut either so so he's just going with what's what's in the contracts and you know once once his A&R people bring these folks in for the most part or he's already dealing with an established artist like the Rolling Stones or the Jacksons or something like that then he can look at the contracts and see like what sort of promotional things they want to do what sort of promotional things they don't want to do and he can make them feel very comfortable and that's a skill it's a skill to to make <laughs> an artist feel comfortable <laughs> yeah absolutely and he, he was clearly very good at that so that's our discussion of um howling at the moon the odyssey of a monstrous music mogul in an age of excess by walter yetnikoff with david ritz so brooks and my guest has been brooks long continuing our series of david ritz books so we've got a few uh, uh interesting choices to come up next what do you want to do next so there's grandmaster flash there's rick james there's oh, I Jimmy think, Scott. 
the Neville brothers? I think uh, I'm looking on my shelf and I've got Glow, uh, the uh, the Rick James book. Yep, yep. Let's do it. Rick James next time. Brooks, always a pleasure. Thanks. Always. Time. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes Eric Weisbard to discuss his book, Songbooks, The Literature of American Popular Music. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.